I didn't think of it that way, of risking your life going to work. But seeing my colleagues pass away in our own ICU, it's just heartbreaking. Please stick with us for a while and just make our lives a little bit easier and then we can all be together again. Behind every case, there's a story. Protect yourself and each other. Be antiviral. Hear more at antiviralireland.com. Supported by the Government of Ireland. everybody, I'm Chloe Maidley and welcome back to the podcast series three. For those of you that don't know, this is the podcast where I speak to professional athletes, coaches, physique competitors and all experts in the field of health and fitness. I'm really excited that you guys are joining me. So without further ado, here we go. Hello everybody and welcome to series three of the podcast. So today we have a woman on who I admire greatly and I look up to hugely in this ramshackle mainstream media world of health and fitness. She is a dietitian and the chair of the British Dietetic Association of London. She specializes in gastrointestinal health. That means the gut guys. And she also lectures at King's College London. She's a consultant at City Dietitians. They're based in London, but obviously they're doing a lot of work over Zoom now, so you can be anywhere. Please welcome on one of my favorite people to follow, dietitian Sophie Medlin. Hi, babe. Hi, Chloe. What a lovely introduction for a Friday. Thanks very much. Thanks. I kind of pride myself on my intros because everyone's always like, wow, that was really nice. And I'm like, yes, I got him. <laughs> Whole in one. I honestly thank you so much for coming on. For the people listening, um, I've told you guys this many times before, none of our guests get paid. They're giving up their time to come on and, and speak to everybody, which is just so commendable. I, I can't thank you enough. And I've given you such a long intro, but do you want to tell my audience who you are, what you do, and kind of how this whole thing came about for you? Yeah, so I've been a dietitian for a long time, been a dietitian since before being a dietitian was trendy. Uh, dietitians and nutritionists all study the science of nutrition. So we do a three-year degree in nutrition, but dietitians go on to learn how to apply that to medicine and to look after people. And so I then went to work in the NHS, which most of us do. So I was in the NHS for about seven years, mainly looking after people who have had bowel surgery or needed bowel surgery or have complex gut problems, including tube feeding and intravenous feeding and all of that kind of stuff. And then I worked as a lecturer and researcher for five years. And now I run my business, City Dietitians. So we are a nutrition consultancy business, as you say. I see many, many patients every week with bowel conditions and various other conditions, problems with their relationship with food, for example, is something that I work on a lot. Um, We also do consultancy for businesses and companies in product development and app development and those sorts of things. And I do a lot of work with the media. Yeah, that sort of thing keeps me busy. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I know how busy you are. And it's, um, it's very, very impressive. So you've touched on so much there that I really want to talk about. I suppose, actually, the first thing that I, I, I'm just curious about on a personal level, how did it go from, you know, being a registered dietitian to being so specifically about um, gut health and and kind of bowel problems? Like, How did that transition happen? Yeah. So the thing to remember is that nutrition is a really broad field. Mm-hmm. And so you can't 
you can't be an expert in all of it. So we're, within the business, we make sure we've got a diabetes specialist dietitian, for example. We've got me who looks after gut stuff. And we've even now got a, another gut dietitian who looks after what we call functional gut disorder. So we've even separated out the, the gastrointestinal problems that people have because it's so complex and you can't yeah. know everything. We have a yeah. pediatric dietitian. So basically what happens when you when you go into work in, in the NHS as a dietitian is you will end up sort of uh, being offered perhaps um, a short-term contract in a specialist team. So you get trained in a generalist way and then you'll get offered specialist training. And the thing that happened to me was I was working with an intestinal failure team, so with people who can't eat anything at all. Um, And the nurses, the specialist nurses there were just so inspirational and they were incredible to work alongside. And they also, uh, actually the whole sort of area of that work, you can make such a difference to people's quality of life Yes. You, you know, if somebody's having really terrible gut problems and they are suffering every day and they're scared of everything they put in their mouth and they're you know, in pain all the time and you can support them to get from that space into a space where they are comfortable and confident with what they're eating and their symptoms settle and they feel better. It's such a gift and I feel so lucky to be able to help people in that way every day. I can imagine my best friend has, uh, well, did have really bad IBS, so much so that she left, we went traveling <laughs> to standard, went traveling after school before uni and she had to leave early because it flared up as it would, you know, when yeah. you're traveling around Southeast Asia and she had to leave. And I just remember watching her, like she was in pieces emotionally and physically every day and now she's got it completely under control um thanks to a dietitian and their help yeah it is such a I don't know I I suppose people think that it's like minor in the grand scheme of things but it's not it can hugely affect your quality of life like in the same way that people think mental health is indulgent but we all know that if it's not dealt with it can lead to death and I think you're doing an amazing job I also love it how you talk about being a specialist in different areas and I love that about you because even in my field there are different coaches who are good and good and less good at different things and you know you know I met you through Emma my business partner my coaching partner she's fantastic at a completely different range of topics uh to me and I I remember you saying like I'm sure you both bring something completely different to the table and I love that you um touch on that one thing that I did want to ask you again before we get into kind of the the crux of this podcast is can you just explain to me like the symptoms of IBS what they actually really are kind of medically as opposed to the symptoms of IBS where people often people think they have IBS and they don't can you kind of explain what that would look like because I know that a lot of my followers would be like oh I get really bad bloating I think I have it and I'd love for you to clear that up yeah sure so IBS is defined by you having a change in bowel habit so it might be that you are you have diarrhea or constipation or that you veer between the two other symptoms like bloating and wind and those sorts of things so it's a general picture of what's going on for people with their GI symptoms with their gut symptoms and I think you know lots of us would recognize that even if we don't think we've got IBS that sometimes we get a bit bloated and sometimes we have a bit of diarrhea and weren't expecting to but it's when it becomes debilitating so when it becomes something that affects your quality of life or create causes you any kind of distress that's when it's time to do something about it. And anyone who has constipation or diarrhea that fluctuates between the two in particular, but you know either end of that spectrum as well, and has wind and bloating and those sorts of symptoms, go to your GP and get that checked out. Make sure it's nothing else. You know, there's lots of other things it could be apart from IBS. Mm-hmm. And if it is causing you distress and it's causing you affecting your quality of life, or you're anxious about eating because of it then it's time to get a diagnosis and get some help. And again, I really want to get into the crux of this, but you keep saying things I want to touch on. Another thing we've talked about before, which I found really interesting, 
Can you explain kind of where, if you were to ask somebody about their bowel movements, where you would kind of put the barometer in terms of healthy and not so health, healthy or quote unquote normal, maybe we have a problem. What, is, what does that spectrum look like? Yeah, so you want to be looking for having your bowels open and anything between three times a day and three times a week is normal. But if you're someone who currently has the bowels open every day, and you suddenly go to only having your bowels open three times every week, then that's a change in your bowel habit. And that's not right for you. So you need to go and get that checked out. Ideally, you're looking for the poo to be kind of quite darkish brown in colour, not black in colour and not too pale. And hopefully when you go to the toilet, it's not so foul smelling that other people <laughs> can't go in there, not necessarily immediately afterwards. But, you know, it shouldn't be so bad that you feel really, really self-conscious and embarrassed. With wind, it's really normal to pass wind all through the day if that's what's normal for you. Some people might find that certain foods cause more wind and most people will find there's some foods that cause more wind than others. We've got Christmas coming up and Brussels sprouts will be on the menu and that's completely yes. normal. Those cruciferous veg, they'll get you. <laughs> Absolutely. They'll get Absolutely. you. But if it's causing you distress again, and you know, I work with patients who are perhaps having to hold in wind every day and that's causing them really bad pain in their tummies and things like that. So that's when it's time to sort of look for some dietary intervention to try and reduce that a bit. Unless it's the beginning of a relationship, in which case holding in wind is kind of part of the course. <laughs> yeah, stomach pain is normal. Let's feel it. Yeah, very normal. I have created a strategy for us to do this podcast today, nice. Sophie. Given that my audience may feel a little bit overwhelmed by the abundance of information that we can get out of you, and given that at some point you're going to start talking about things that I need schooling on as well, I thought that we could use this kind of podcast as a little crash course in nutrition. What do you think? Sounds good. Yeah, very happy to go back to Nutrition 101. Let's start from the very beginning. Please, can you just give us a picture of what an optimally healthy, and everybody listening, guys, I am saying optimally healthy diet would really look like in terms of the various macro and micronutrients and other such substances like fiber, etc. Yeah, great question. So it's hard to define it, obviously, because everyone's completely different. So when we think about sort of general population level advice, which is the easiest place to start, then we're looking at you making sure that you're having at least five portions of fruit and vegetables a day, ideally getting closer to 10. And usually the best way to incorporate that or to think about that is to make sure you're having at least one at breakfast time, at least two at lunchtime, and then maybe three in the evening and perhaps one snack that includes some fruit and veg. So yeah. getting that in every day is really important. And the other important thing with fruit and veg is to make sure you're eating a rainbow. So we've learned in more recent years that the color of the vegetables denotes different properties in the plant which have different impacts on our body so for example purple fruit and vegetables are really excellent for our brain health and we you probably people are more familiar with the example that yellow and citrus fruits and things in that department are really great for your immune system and i think chloe you and i know lots of people who get stuck in the kind of broccoli and sweet potato and nothing else <laughs> around when they're <laughs> the, trying to lose weight and yeah we call it the bro diet bro science it's like yeah. chicken broccoli rice done yeah, exactly. And that's obviously not giving you the variety that you really need. So that's really important. We want some lean protein. So that's important every day. And you probably want about two portions of lean protein a day or to think about where you're going to include that. And that could be yeah. plant based protein like soya or corn or tofu. Any of those things are great. Pulses are yeah. ideal. In an ideal world, from a, from a nutritional perspective, it will include some animal protein, too. So that might be yogurt or it might be eggs or it might be um, chicken, fish meat sometimes and we want to get that balance right so white meat is much healthier for us than red meat but some red meat is helpful particularly for women around the time of their menstrual cycles when you're having a period 
having yes. some red meat is helpful. So you want to kind of keep red meat to maybe a couple of times a week maximum. And you definitely want to be having two portions of oily fish a week. And that's things like salmon and mackerel and those sorts of fish that we're not very good at including in this country. Yeah. In terms of carbohydrates, we want to be having some of those every day. And you'll probably want to balance your carbohydrates against how much energy you're expending. So if you're not doing very much, you know, we've just come out of lockdown and everything else, if you're not physically active, you don't need lots of carbohydrate through the day. But the more physically active you are, the chances are you're going to feel a bit better if you have a bit more carbohydrate in your diet. Yes. And we want to be concentrating on having um, whole grain carbohydrates. So there's high fiber carbohydrates that can really help us with our gut health and our overall health. They help us to regulate our blood sugars better. So we're not having spikes through the day. They help us to regulate our appetite and other really positive things. But, you know, importantly, they're really great for our gut health. And we need to focus on that. And that's, that's something I'm particularly passionate about. Yeah. And and we will get on to gut health because obviously that is <laughs> really why I want you here, but carry on. <laughs> and the other thing that we, you know, we know is that if people eat nuts every day, they have much lower risk of certain diseases. So making sure you're having, including nuts in your diet somewhere most days will, will have a big impact. And nuts make a brilliant snack because they're high in protein and lower in carbohydrates. They don't affect your appetite. You don't eat them and then suddenly feel hungry again a couple of hours later. They help you to regulate your appetite through through the day. But I think if you're ticking some of those boxes, you're in a good space. Yeah, see, I love this. This is, oh, this is exactly why I wanted you on. This is like kind of nutrition 101. This is the, the information that absolutely everybody should know. And obviously, look, we know how hard it is sometimes to tick all those boxes every single day of every week, of every month, of every year. Like it's, it's likely not going to happen, which is why I really reinforced optimally healthy here. But I just wanted to touch on a couple of things that Sophie said. Often I get people saying to me like, how do I get veg in my breakfast? It's so hard. I don't understand. A, if you're having a savory breakfast like eggs, you just make an omelet with loads of veg or you just do a side of breakfast veg like tomatoes, onion, spinach. And those those all three will count as three of, of your five a day. It's not one. That's, those are three great portions for you. And obviously, if you are someone who likes a sweet breakfast, which is where I think the confusion comes in, just do what Sophie said in terms of your lean protein. Like Get a 0% Greek yogurt, which has got like 25 grams of protein a pot. It's amazing. And just get some fruit in there. You know, berries are obviously brilliant, but really any fruit will do switch it up every morning and and yeah that is just weirdly I know that sounds like such a I don't know what's like a kind of rudimental or silly question but I get it almost every day and it always surprises me Sophie just really quickly and I don't want to make turn this into a vegan podcast by any means but just really quickly um I'm a I'm completely fine with my clients being vegan as long as they do get in their complete protein whether that's from combined plant-based protein throughout the course of the day or from you know a source of protein which really ticks off the amino acid profile like soy or tofu but what is your take on veganism and what tips would you say to to anybody who comes to you and says I'm thinking of going vegan what are your kind of right off the bat tips sure so um following a vegan diet makes it more difficult for you to meet your nutritional requirements so first of all you need to make sure that it's absolutely the right thing for you from an ethical perspective whether that's kind of animal rights or whether that's environmental a vegan diet is is not as good for you from a nutritional perspective so from a nutritional yeah. perspective we really need to make sure people are supplementing very heavily and very carefully that they're making sure they're combining their proteins and having two or three different types of plant-based proteins every day making sure they're having green leafy vegetables every day taking algae oil supplements there's loads of boxes that vegans need to be ticking every single day you know i see plenty of vegans in my practice 
and they're very rarely making sure they tick those protein boxes and very often they're struggling with energy levels and things like that so those amino acid profiles are just so important and you know what i think there is really positive movement in the vegan community to be a bit more responsible around messaging with this stuff around the nutrition messaging but you know we were coming from a place where four years ago if you said anything about vegan diets being less good nutritionally or, or causing nutritional compromise i mean i was trolled horrifically for oh, saying that on tv it, four years ago yeah. you know, it was awful so if it's the right thing for you from an ethical perspective and from an environmental perspective or whatever that thing is maybe it's a religious perspective then amazing we'll support you we'll get you there 100 percent. if you're doing it for nutrition there are better ways of being optimally healthy nutritionally and, and no one is saying that eating loads of plants isn't a good idea eating being plant-based is a really great idea. I would say I'm plant-based, but I'm not a vegan, but I mostly eat plants. And that's yeah. kind of where we all want to start our diets from, really. Oh, I absolutely love everything you just said. It really, it's really funny how after Game Changers came out, everybody was like, see, I told you being a vegan is healthier, it's better. And it's like, well, if you know anything about nutrition, which let's be honest, the vast majority of the public don't know anything about nutrition. And that's why we're kind of in the shit heap that we're in with this. Um, it's actually not an optimally healthy diet at all, um, unless, you know, you have maybe certain kind of metabolic diseases or or kind of dietary intolerances, in which case, you know, it is actually for your body better. But that doesn't apply to, you know, the mass public. I kind of was at pains to say to people that a lot of the benefits that people in the Game Changers saw were simply because they increased their uh, fruit and veg in their diet. <laughs> How did you find that Game Changers kind of put a bit of a hurdle in the road of teaching people about good nutrition? It, it, it approached it from a different angle. And I think one of the things that was compelling about that story for me was just remembering that James Cameron, who was one of the directors, owns a very big vegan protein company. So he's, yes. you know, these people are already invested with Netflix and the rise of Netflix, our relationship with food has changed quite a lot in the UK. But we're used to documentaries having to be unbiased we used to Channel 4 and the BBC who are obligated to produce unbiased documentaes whereas in the UK US if you're paying for it you can say whatever you like and that's yeah. where i think we've been duped in a lot of ways by these documentaries yeah. that have come across from the US because it's not the same you know it's not the same responsibility to broadcasting as we have enjoyed in the UK up until this point i mean it was it was a complicated little story wasn't it trying to unpick that and try to reassure people that they are fine and it's okay and there's nothing to worry about they don't need to change the diet if it's working for them then that's great i think it was more compelling when uh, cowspiracy came out and people were you know ethically very driven to make changes and i can understand that i also find and i don't know what you think about this but i find there's just this great hypocrisy in arnie selling vegan diets when he's probably oh. eaten more meat than any of us could possibly <laughs> hope to like in his bodybuilding days he must have been consuming adult animal products at the rate of five other humans you know oh yeah all you have to do is watch pumping iron to get a confirmation of that but it is so interesting like even just touching on the word science just that word and that word alone it's so interesting how many people watched that and was like it's science and it was like it's not it's a subjective study and science is the result of a clinical trial and actually science is ever evolving and to everybody and anybody who is watching you know kind of pts on instagram and yes i know i'm one of them so you know 
I, I, but I'm also very aware of reality. Watching PTs on Instagram having some massive ramp because they have a book to sell or because they have a, a podcast to promote. Yes, again, I'm aware of the irony of what I'm <laughs> And they're like, oh, well, this person knows the science or knows her science. So, that, so that's it. I'm going to buy into everything. I am, you know, a qualified coach. I've got three separate qualifications. I have a very rudimental qualification in nutrition. Do you know how many people I refer to dietitians on a yearly basis? Because I'm like, I am not qualified to write you a diet plan. And you know what, if it went wrong, I'd get stung in jail because I'm not even protected by my qualifications here. Look for the coaches who say, actually, I don't know. This isn't my subject. I'm not sure. And this applies to physios as well. So many people, my clients ask me for physiotherapy advice. I'm like, do you think I'm a physio? Like, I don't know. But yeah, look for the real scientists with the real qualifications. Yes. And the real scientists will say, I don't know that body of literature. You know, what you're talking about with science is so important. You know, now science is more accessible than ever. And literally anyone could go into PubMed, PubMed and type yeah. in a few things and say, this is evidence-based. What you're missing there is the contextualization of that one paper within the whole body of literature from the last 20 years on that subject. And so if a new paper comes out about, let's say, um, Crohn's disease, for me, I can read it. And I'll go, oh, that's really interesting. It might be about something, let's say, like turmeric and IBD. So I'll read it and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But I also know in the back of my head that there's been 20 other studies and huge meta-analysis of those that shows that there isn't really very much difference and that actually it's not something we can recommend at this point. But somebody else might pick up that paper and go, oh, this proves everything I ever wanted to read about turmeric and I'm going to start pumping my body full of it, you know? So The key there, my point is, unless you've studied that whole body of literature, it's very hard to contextualise that one paper and know whether it's real, valuable, whether it's been disproven 10,000 times before. You've just found that one paper that says what you wanted to say. We call that confirmation bias. Also, I mean, it's prevalent in so many areas, but, but I get yelled at a lot of the time for using the word context too much. And I'm like, there's no such thing in using it too much because all context has been lost now in all short form media, which includes social media and uh, even, you know, online press websites. It's short form. It's not long form. There is no context. Podcasts are great. Even these are kind of short form, but podcasts are great because you actually get some levels of context here. And I love everything you just said. And also like studies cross over. Like I read a study on um, intermittent fasting a few weeks ago and it crossed over with um, nutritional benefits of the coffee bean which I found really interesting and I think people need to if you go on PubMed and you, you start to do some research on what you're looking for it is intimidating at first but it is a skill that you will learn and if you're not really interested in science don't look at the short form and assume you know everything go to a professional and ask the question yeah and don't just read the abstract of something and think you understand if people are interested in nutrition then and this is not an ad examine.com is brilliant you can search for almost anything within the topic of nutrition it summarizes it really neatly for you oh couldn't agree more okay so now we've had our little rant about science (laughs) in the mainstream we are actually there are some more ranty questions in here so we're, we're, we're gearing up nicely so as I kind of referenced in the last questions optimally healthy isn't necessarily realistic talk to me about is there room and if so when when how much room is there in the daily diet for kind of what we would term junk food, treats, um, and things like that? And when would you say it is beneficial for reasons I'm sure you'll touch on? And when would you say that actually you need to rein it in? We call it discretionary food in, in our world, like in the nutrition and dietitian world. And I think that's quite a nice way of thinking about it because it's not food that you need. Your body doesn't need it. 
but you want to use your discretion about how often you're having it. Food is joy, right? It was, you know, it's going to be Christmas soon. Food is joy. We should all be allowed to enjoy those culturally relevant foods and culturally important foods. Birthday cake is a great example. Most of us will have some kind of uh, discretionary food, treat food most days. And that's, that's fine as long as it's within the context of all the other things and you're ticking lots of those other good boxes. One of the things that I think can be really helpful is just to have a few non-negotiables for yourself about your diet. But I don't ever want them to be never eat this. I want them to be always eat this. And that might be the non-negotiables being always have five portions of fruit and veg a day and one snack of nuts or just something that is like the things that you always do every day. Even when it's Christmas, you can tick those boxes every day. And usually when you have those healthy habits, you notice how much better you feel. And then when you do eat like... I don't know, get a dirty takeaway on a Friday night. You eat it and you might immediately feel nice, but you probably feel a bit crap the next day. And that's where you sort yes. of think, actually, I want to look after my body a bit better. But people have to get off that wagon of just having all of the less healthy food every single day in order for them to feel the health benefits of eating differently. And then they can think, okay, I'm going to have a bit of that. I know it's not going to make me feel so good, but I'm going to have a bit of it anyway and enjoy it and not feel guilty about it. But I know the next day I'm going to eat better. And I think we need to be thinking about those discretionary foods in a in a more holistic way and thinking about them as kind of joy foods or celebratory foods as opposed to something that is part of your daily and everyday diet one of it an example that I use around this is if you're going out for coffee and cake with your friend that's great that's lovely have a nice time if you're eating cake at home because you're sad and you're unhappy or you're bored the food is the same it's not the food that's the problem it's the reason that's problematic And generally, when we find ourselves struggling to move away from some of these less healthy foods, it's usually because we're not very happy or we're bored or we're struggling in some way. And so if you are struggling, if people are struggling to move away from those less healthy foods and stay out of the crisps and cupboards and everything else, one is obviously manage your environment a little bit and don't have them in the house so much. But two is just when you do eat them and you're not physically hungry, try to reflect on why and what's been going on in that moment. So why have you eaten that and what's going on in that moment? Or why did you want to eat that? And what could you do instead? Oh, I I mean, absolutely nailed it. First point, discretionary food, as in at your discretion. Just absolutely love that term, taking that. Thank you. (laughs) Um, uh, And I I also like what you said, you know, a uh, a lot of my clients suffer with binge eating disorder. A lot more than I realized. So I obviously I do much bigger group coaching now, which is fantastic and very, very rewarding. Um, but I didn't I never really saw on such a grand scale how many people suffer with binge eating. And I think the reason this has happened is because obviously food is the drug of choice for many, 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 many people. And I think, you know, obviously, especially at the moment, 2020 has been extremely fun. <laughs> um, I think people are, are really turning to food for comfort. And then what's happening is they're, they're feeling ashamed and guilty that they overate when potentially they didn't really overate. So then they kind of decide to get an all or nothing mentality, um, which, you know, probably nutritionally is really healthy, but mentally it's incredibly unhealthy. They get all or nothing mentality, no junk, no junk, no junk. And what ends up happening? They end up binging. The shame cycle continues and round and around and around we go. So I tend to have a couple of strategies, which I'll just touch on for anyone listening who might be struggling with this. Exactly what Sophie said, 
I'm not trying to encourage your binge eating by saying don't keep it in the house. Uh, I'm just trying to exactly what she said, manage your environment so that we can actually, in a practical sense, pull this back a bit. Don't have it in the house. When you do want to have a treat, be it a dessert or half a bottle of wine or whatever it is, do it when you're out with friends and or family because then you're really getting the enjoyment of it. You're having the quote unquote treat that you want. Um, and it's very different from sitting on your own at home and hiding the fact that you're overeating. Now, this is like the, the first step into creating a much healthier relationship with food and your body. And, you know, what I would say we kind of treat food or junk food is either allow for a little bit of it every day. I actually think advent calendars are fucking brilliant. <laughs> Loads of my clients are like, oh my God, what am I going to do? There's chocolate everywhere. It's Christmas. I'm like, get an advent calendar and have a bit of chocolate every day. It's a good exercise for a lot of people. It's either having a little bit of room for it every day, doing it socially, not keeping it in the house. There are lots of tips and tricks, but um. Yeah, I think that the managing your food environment is important. You know, I have patients who say, oh, I'm binge eating. And actually what they mean is that they ate two packets of crisps in a day. You know, yeah. they're not they're not binge eating. That's not binge right. eating. Everyone does that. It's normal. You know, it's normal stuff. And I think people think that there's like this mecca where they never want to eat crisps and they never yeah. want to eat, you know, cake. It's not, that's yeah. never going to happen. That will always be the case. And everyone who I know, the best people in nutrition eat cakes and crisps and chocolate probably more than other people because we know the kind of <laughs> risk you know the science yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think um you know if we if we imagine that we're going to get ourselves into a situation where we never want to eat those foods or never eat them again it, it's not realistic it's not healthy it's not something you should be aiming for like feeling guilty about what you eat generally makes you go oh, I've failed now anyway I'm going to eat everything else in the house yeah. and that's a really unhe- unhelpful cycle to get into another trick also for anyone listening have your you know quote unquote clean healthy meal you know all your veg all your volume all your protein like whatever it is that's kind of getting you towards your goals and then if you still want to have a quote unquote treat at the end of it you know that whisper bar or that what a slice of cake that somebody brought over, like then you can have it and then you'll probably really enjoy it. You're not doing it to fill, you know, a void. Actually, you'll probably find that you don't want it and maybe you'll have it after dinner instead or maybe you'll have it with your coffee tomorrow. Um, And it's a really nice way to just kind of practice some restraint while appreciating food. I've been in hospital three separate times. One was the big three-week stay in the coma. Number two was the nerve damage diagnosis. Number three was a surprise attack out of nowhere and I couldn't breathe properly. You know, perfectly healthy 17-year-old, no underlying conditions. It's crazy. Behind every case, there's a story. Protect yourself and each other. Be antiviral. Hear more at antiviralireland.com. Supported by the Government of Ireland. Acast recommends podcasts we love. I'm Sam Bungie, one of the hosts of West Cork, a story about a community on the far south coast of Ireland that became a kind of paradise for people looking for a fresh start. And nobody knew their past. You could be who you wanted to be rather than who you really were. Then one newcomer was murdered and another was suspected of doing it. I see him in the market and really he's always trying to be normal and trying to get people to like him. But we all know. Listen to West Cork now on Acast. Acast powers the world's best podcasts, including the Irish History Podcast, The Two Johnnies, and the one you're listening to right now. Let us move on to the basics of your speciality. 
tell us about the basics of kind of gut health. I guess maybe let's just start with the biology. How does the gut work? And and yeah, just the basic rudimental facts. Oh, I love this. So when you eat food, any food, it obviously travels down your esophagus, which people will be familiar with, and it lands in your stomach. In your stomach, the acid in your stomach then starts to break down the joins in the food. And what I'm talking about here, maybe your audience will be really familiar with the idea of proteins being like a whole piece of chicken being broken down into amino acids. And amino acids are like the particles within the protein that we use. So our body breaks down anything that's complex into its simplest form. And that's the process of digestion. Same with carbohydrates being broken down into sugar, the acid and then enzymes further down literally just chop up that food into its tiniest forms so that it can pass across our gut into our bloodstream. So from our stomach, it's kind of churned up and made into this mulch with the acid and it breaks it down. A bit like going into a dishwasher and having all of the like dishwasher detergent put in to break everything down. It breaks down lipids, so fats into lipids. Then it travels through, so it empties from our stomach on the right-hand side at the bottom down into our the first part of our small bowel, which is called your duodenum. And in your duodenum, you have the, the gallbladder, which releases bile that helps to break down fats into their lipid form. And you have your pancreas, which releases enzymes called protease, amylase, and uh, lipase and they are literally for protein fat and carbohydrate and they again just work to break down the structures of those foods into their smallest possible forms then everything travels through into your jejunum it's called the first part of your small bowel which is maybe between four and five meters long so it's a really long organ and it's got all of these little finger-like projections in it called villi and that increases the surface area of your bowel massively and within those villi there are blood vessels But there are also little bits of enzyme that help to break the food down further. So, for example, lactase that breaks down lactose in milk lives within those villi in your small bowel. And what those villi are doing is basically sucking up all of the nutrients from that food that you've eaten. And they can only suck up the nutrients that have been broken down into the smallest possible forms. And they then cross into your sort of bloodstream and are processed through your body and do all the things they need to do and are redirected to wherever they need to go on your villi in your small bowel you've got receptors for all different nutrients. So you've got receptors for zinc and selenium and copper and and all these things and for various different carbohydrates and different shapes and sizes of sugars and all these different sorts of things. And a lot of those receptors are genetically determined. So some people are more uh, adept at absorbing zinc, for example, than other people are. So we have these kind of finite number of receptors on our small bowel and that's where we suck up any nutrients we can possibly access from that food. The food then travels through to our ileum which is like the last part of your small bowel, um, where mostly water is absorbed and any other nutrients that are left kicking around. There's one bit of your small, like the last bit of your small bowel absorbs vitamin B12 and a couple of other important things. But then it travels through into your colon. And in your colon, which is a metre and a half long, it's a really big organ. And for people who don't know, it travels all the way up from the bottom bit of your pelvis on the right hand side, all the way up under your ribs, and then all the way down the other side before it gets into your bottom, into your rectum. So it's a really big organ that spans basically our whole abdomen. And so that means if it is unhappy, if you're bloated, it feels very uncomfortable. It's full of air and it's like a big balloon, you know, it's a big thing that's going on. Anything that's left over from your food travels into your colon. And generally what's left at this point is going to be plant fibre that we can't Mm. break down. If you've eaten tons of processed meat, you probably won't be able to break that down very well either. So some of that will get in. If you have had lots and lots of lactose and you're not great at absorbing it some of that will get in and all of that is fermented by bacteria in your colon and in your colon you have got trillions and trillions of different bacteria 
that do all sorts of different jobs. Some of them are ones that help to reduce the inflammation in the bowel. Some of them are very gas producing, so you get more wind. And some of them release neurotransmitters that communicate with your brain. Mm. So there's loads of really exciting bacteria that live in there and do lots of different things. And the key to having good gut bacteria is eating good plant variety. So eating loads of different plants every day means that you're feeding all the different species of bacteria the right things that they like. And that's how you can really enjoy the best possible gut health, which is associated with reduced risk of diabetes, reduced risk of heart disease, reduced risk of depression and anxiety and some of these things that we would never associate with our gut before. But now we really understand the impact. So in your colon, your bacteria are doing their job and your gut's absorbing salt and water. It's all been sucked out from there. And then that's how the poo is gradually formed into a more like a more of a solid stool. And then you'll pass that later in the day. Oh, just so <laughs> Huge round of applause. I just absolutely love you. And I love how you make it, no pun intended, so digestible. Have I made that joke to you before? <laughs> I just got a really horrible sense of deja vu there. Um, okay, so we've touched on this before and I found this really interesting. I'm just going to do like a quick guessing game and then I want you to fill in the gaps and maybe expand on this. Factors that affect your gut health. I'm going to try to do this in order. Genetics, childbirth, early infancy, immune system um, kind of exposure and also antibiotic usage, diet. And that's where I run out. Do you want to talk about, <laughs> and if you can do this linearly, all the different factors that happen right from when you're conceived all the way up to adult life that would affect your gut health in a positive and or negative way? When we're in our mum's womb, we're a completely clean environment. There is no bacteria in us whatsoever. The birthing method that we have, whether we're delivered vaginally or as through a cesarean section, has an impact on our gut bacteria for the rest of our life. Like People can measure that. So ideally, we're all born through the vaginal canal, and that helps us to collect those first bits of bacteria, which are really important for our long term sort of establishment of our, of our gut flora. Then our method of feeding has a big impact. So whether you're breastfed or bottle fed has an impact, again, an, an impact that we can see th- for the rest of somebody's life. And there should be absolutely zero shame in women who struggle to breastfeed or choose not to. Mm. I think that you have to do what's right for you. Because ultimately, mother's stress will also have an impact on your gut bacteria for the rest of your life. So there's so many different things that can impact it. But those are the sort of very earliest things. And then, of course, what you're exposed to at home. So if you've got animals at home, for example, then you'll, you, as babies and children, especially as you start moving around more, you're going to get exposed to that kind of bacteria. And that actually generally improves gut bacterial diversity. The more we're exposed to in that way can, can make us potentially a little bit more robust for the future. When we're weaning, that, of course, is the next big phase of when depending on what's going to happen with our gut bacteria so generally now babies are are weaned on fruits and vegetables and that sort of thing then as we move and and if you've been poorly as a child if you've been sick if you had gastroenteritis or you've had you know we used to get lots of ear infections and throat infections and gps and doctors would just throw antibiotics at kids we're better at that now then generally um so who you live with in the house so who's around in your environment will have an impact Um, If someone new moves into the house, that will have an impact on your gut bacteria and you sort of start sharing little bits of traits and things. And then when you leave home, then if you're going to go to university, for example, most people have a massive change in diet when they go to university. They're living with all kinds of different people. They're generally drinking a lot of alcohol. And then you have generally a big shift in your gut bacteria, usually for the worse. So usually when people go to university and work with my patients who've got IBS, I'll say, when did you notice things got worse? And they'll usually say, 
but changed quite significantly when I was at university and then just never really got better from there. That's a really huh. common picture. Or when I went traveling after university. Yeah, binge drinking. Like basically I was drunk every day for three years. <laughs> like, okay, that's probably the problem. <laughs> That'll do the trick. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, bacteria do not like that. So those are the sort of major things in your early life that can have a big impact in, on your gut bacteria. Then when you move house, when you move in with new people, if you're significantly stressed for a period of time, that has a big impact on your gut bacteria. Um, and then as we get older, we notice that people's diversity of gut bacteria, so remember diversity being the thing that makes you you as well as possible, diversity of gut bacteria naturally declines. And we don't know at this point whether that's because older people generally get a bit more regimented with the types of food they eat, or whether it's just a natural decline in gut bacteria that happens um, that's inevitable. But it's obviously yeah. it's a two-way street. And then, you know, as we get older and older, our gut bacteria diversity declines further and we end up with the sorts of uh, problems of older age that we would expect. Right the way from conception all the way to death. <laughs> it's just so good. And when you when we first had this conversation, I was like, Sophie, cool. So I was C-section. My mum didn't breastfeed me. And I was I was literally spent my whole childhood on antibiotics. She was like, Yeah, your parents fucked you up. I was like, damn it. <laughs> I never said that. I may have thought it, but I never said it. <laughs> All of my listeners are like, that sounds like Chloe, like literally regurgitating <laughs> what she actually would have said. It's so interesting because the exact same thing in, in my world we talk about with, with metabolism. You know, so many people are like, oh, you know, when you get older, your metabolism slows down. It's like, okay, well, break down what makes up the metabolism and then ask yourself why it's slowing down. Now, of course, things like menopause and hormonal uh, changes can make you more insulin resistant and that can be a problem. But generally, by and large, it's because as you age you you stop getting up and moving around as much you know when you exercise you know you're more likely to have like kind of creaks in your body so actually you do kind of a much more kind of subtle easygoing form of exercise which is essentially just decreasing your energy expenditure your calorie output Um, and it actually has been proven now at this stage that it is just behavioral with the caveat of hormonal changes but um it's really interesting that you say that it applies to the gut too and I just hadn't thought of that I can't wait to see what what studies churn up about that in the next few years I know I know and it's so interesting with the um, muscle mass and the the, the potential oh. benefits of sustaining muscle mass through into old age you know that will have an impact on things like gut health if you're not exercising your gut doesn't move as effectively and you know maybe that is one of the things that has a huge impact on on older people's digestion and also their their gut bacteria oh what a good point what a good crossover I actually I have that here like tell me about exercise and and the impact on the gut so do you want to jump into that yeah nice so I think Probably one of the main benefits of exercise for the gut is it's so good for helping us to feel less stressed. When we're stressed, we produce more stomach acid, which then impacts the acidity of the environment in our small bowel. And that then impacts how how much different bacteria can thrive in our colon. And so that has a big impact on lots of different things in terms of our digestion and our gut health. So if you're using exercise to help you to manage stress, which in my opinion is one of the best reasons to use exercise and to do exercise, then that will have a big impact on your gut health. Exercise and movement also helps your gut to move effectively. So the peristaltic movements, the squeezing movements that move poo along your gut, they really respond to exercise. They respond to us you know, moving our bodies and that have really helps to get things going. If someone's got chronic constipation, then moving themselves will help massively. So exercise for some people, for example, if you're going for a long run, it might really make you need a poo urgently and that sort of thing. And that's also really normal. It's just about maybe managing your diet a little bit beforehand so that that's not so so prevalent for you. And you just may need to do some dietary adaptations if you are finding your gut function is holding you back from exercise. 
Yeah, I love that. Again, like this is something I say to my clients all the time with hormonal stuff. Like you don't have to be, you don't have to go into a state of, you know, manic depression for one week of every month because, you know, your because your menstrual cycle affects you that badly. Go to the doctor. Same thing applies to your gut. And I, I love that advice. Um, you know, there's so much amazing research out there on just taking like 10 minute walks post meals for in terms of digestion and kind of like insulin response. Um, do you want to just give some people a few tips and tricks? Jesus, why is it so hard? Um, <laughs> on how to improve their gut health in terms of dietary and then obviously in terms of um, physicality. And, and then we'll, we'll slowly start to wrap up this amazing podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. So um, I think that gut health weirdly has become massively glamorized over the last few years. And it's sort of maybe seems like something that is out of reach for people sometimes you know you think you have to buy special probiotics and you think you have to you know spend a fortune on this or that or you have to buy special fiber bars and whatever it is that people think they have to do now all the stuff <laughs> that's like really out of people's reach you know and actually yeah. your gut health will be benefited by making some really really small changes so if at the moment you're eating white bread, for example, try whole grain and try even try like a seeded sourdough would be amazing for you because you've got some good gut bacteria in there. Getting in those fruits and vegetables every day, making sure you're focusing on that and that plant variety. So remembering that your gut bacteria love plant variety. Sprinkling some seeds on salads or on soups is great. Just adding a little bit where you can is, is really helpful. And thinking about, you know, fermented foods may be really helpful for some people as well. So things like kefir, some people like sauerkraut, pickles, all that kind of stuff. There's lots of good uh, recipes online for that sort of thing now. And it's really accessible. And it doesn't mean that you have to change your whole diet or buy expensive probiotics or do anything magic. And some yeah. people find that like using the meal, you know, the meal box delivery companies, those sorts yes. of things mean that you're not eating the same meals on repeat every week or getting a veg box delivered if you can afford that sort of thing. Use yeah. some different vegetables, have some, you know, do some experimentation. It will help you with your variety. And, that, and that's really what you got bacteria like the most yeah I absolutely love that small incremental changes that don't actually you know feel like a lot and and just for anybody who you know is, is in a calorie deficit or is in a fat loss phase the same rule applies I don't really recommend pulling something out of your diet I recommend replacing it with something lower calorie or more nutritionally sound or whatever it is try and find swaps you know what's so funny Sophie is that I have had so many run-ins with like coaches and PTs online where I'm like try it with brown bread instead of white and they're like there's as many calories in this and this and this this is really bad advice I'm like there is more to a dietary intake than just calories there is so much more to it than that what about nutrition what about fiber what about fatty acids I mean it's mind-boggling to me how there's been this like huge movement um firstly I think the first movement was like the uh the anti-diet community like, it doesn't matter. It's all about calories. And it's like, what about nutrition and saying things like, you know, all calories are cre created equal. Well, yes, a calorie is a calorie. A unit of heat is a unit of heat. That's the end of that. But they're not nutritionally created equal and thermically created equal or, you know, in, in terms of fiber uh, created equal. What are your thoughts on the kind of celebrities and social media influencers pushing products like diet pills, laxative teas, skinny jabs, IV drips? Um, and just like, I think, hopefully everybody who's responsible online and has a following uh, you're outraged by it. Um, do you just want to speak on that for a, for a quick minute? Just yesterday, there's another article released about uh, as someone who's a famous singer in the US died from injecting himself with vitamins that are, you know, yeah. freely available to buy and heavily promoted by celebrities. And 
I think there should be absolutely no one selling nutrition products, nutrition plans, anything else to people on social media. I think it is really unsafe practice, um, but particularly for unqualified people. And one of the things I've been trying to campaign for is probably a loose phrase we've been talking about for a while is hoping that Instagram will use some kind of verification tick for qualified people so a different verification system for people who are actually qualified to talk about what they're talking about because there's been so much you know dangerous misinformation online um, over the last year or so I just you know the risk that people are being put under is irresponsible of the government not to do something about it and I really hope that we can get some traction to, to to weed out some of this really bad practice on social media I saw this ridiculous thing the other day that on TikTok, people are selling um, a diet plan based on the shape of your feet. And so the shape of your toes can tell you what sort of diet you should follow. And of course, it's like keto, paleo or whatever the other one is. And, you know, it's being marketed at really young people and people are getting trapped in that space and believing that they have to do these nonsense things and pay for this nonsense in order to be well or look like other people on Instagram and 90% of the other people on Instagram have been airbrushed or had whatever they've done or they've had fillers or, or surgery anyway. Yeah. So it's just a really nasty environment for people at the moment. And I really hope that um, in the future things will be better. And I am sort of got a petition running. We're going to try and push that forward a little bit and move things uh, in the right direction. And I think it leads to overeating, undereating, eating disorders, binge eating, all of these things that, that so many people are suffering with now. And it's such a shame and it's such a trap for people. So, yeah, it's something that I feel passionately needs to be regulated appropriately. I couldn't agree with you more. And guys, if you're interested in signing that petition, um, just go on. Sophie, what is your Instagram handle? I'm Sophie Dietitian. Sophie Dietitian. And uh, she has posts and also in, in, it's in your link tree as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, to yeah. sign that petition. And I really, I urge all my audience to do that because I know that you guys listen in spades and um, that will be you guys doing something good for the health and fitness community and the science community. So, so please do sign that. Okay, we're going to wrap it up now. It, Sophie, I think this has been the favorite podcast I've ever done with anyone I just (laughs) I love I love how you take the science and you you articulate it and you break it down this is so funny so many crossovers with the gut um and you break (laughs) it down and you make it digestible for everybody to take on um and learn from and and implement uh changes that that will help them I just loved it um you know I do this with all my guests uh you know two three series in now we're going to end and I just want to give you the floor for a minute, two minutes, however long you want to promote anything you want to promote, to say a message that you think needs to be said, although I think you've, you've done that a fair bit already and to just leave people with anything that you think would be beneficial to be left with. And then we'll wrap it up. Thank you. So come and check out the business. So we're citydietitians.co.uk. We've got a range of specialist dietitians who can help you with any nutritional problems that you've got. Please remember that if you have a, a, a you want nutritional help with a medical problem, you need a dietitian, nutritionist, nutritional therapist, not medically trained. If it's a medical problem you want nutritional help with, you must see a dietitian. One of the things I see all the time is that people have been to see a nutritional therapist, for example, and been sold all these tests and sold all these supplements Ugh. and things like that. When what we would do is write to your GP if you need legitimately need any tests or you legitimately need any treatments, we would write to your doctor and get them sorted for you. So please bear that in mind that you need to be helped in in the right way for you. We also do nutrition consultancy. So I design vitamins and work with app companies and all kinds of things. So if you're interested in getting into the nutrition space, we have an idea, hits up and we can definitely do some support, give you some support and ideas about how you could build that sort of thing. 
Um, we'd love you, obviously, I'd love you to follow me on social media. I'm really bad at running the City Dietitian social media, but I'm Sophie <laughs> Dietitian everywhere. You should be able to find me quite easily, hopefully. Um, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That does it for today's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember to hit that subscribe button or that follow link so that you can be notified as soon as new episodes are released. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Chloe for more health and fitness posts. Sports Social Podcast Network.